Welcome back to South African Border Wars with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 24, and we'll hear how Swalpo insurgency into Ovambaland began increasing rapidly after the end of Operation Savannah in early 1976. The Angolan War was just getting going, and its future would be determined to a large extent by Cold War politics. Despite strong competition, the Soviet Union managed to reassert its power, and its decision to intervene drastically in Angola was motivated by the perception that it had lost influence in the Third World. Moscow wanted to show support for liberation movements in Africa, and Angola was an opportunity which they exploited to the full. By the start of 1976, the USSR actually had relatively few ties remaining in Africa. Moscow had suffered setbacks in Ghana, Mali, Zaire and the Sudan, while relations with Egypt were in decline. Meanwhile, the Chinese had made great strides in East Africa, particularly in Zambia and Tanzania, and Beijing was challenging Moscow openly. Worse, the Chinese and the Americans had actually colluded in their joint covert support for the FNLA. And for Soviet leader Leonid Brezhnev, a positive outcome for the Russians in Angola would be domestically important. After suffering the ignominious rejection in the other African countries, the Politburo needed good news. The Soviet-Cuban intervention in Angola was not a grand conspiracy, as some have described it, particularly ex-Rhodesian military. It was a publicly visible strategy. It proved to be the product of several external factors, particularly the Cold War and internal Russian machinations. And the intervention in Angola bestowed on the USSR a new image. Moscow was now seen as a dependable ally and supporter of black states in southern Africa. These included liberation movements like SWAPO in southwest Africa and the African National Congress in South Africa. For the Americans watching all of this, it became apparent and quite rapidly that the Soviets were effective in long-range sea and airlift capabilities militarily. Moscow's decision-making also surprised the U.S., particularly when it came to Russia double-guessing what the Americans would do next. Take the early decision by Brezhnev to send arms and even men into Angola after the South Africans invaded in October 1975. Only later did it come to light that during the major Soviet-Cuban escalation in the intervention in December of that year, that there was actually a brief halt for two weeks between the 9th and 25th of December. We now know that was so the Russian leadership could re-evaluate its policies in the light of America's public warnings that Soviet actions in Angola threatened the United States-Soviet relationship such as it was, of course. As soon as the U.S. Senate voted against covert aid to the FNLA and UNITA, fearing another Vietnam, the Russians resumed the operations in Angola. The Americans had blinked. Cuba was another matter entirely. There are those who believe that Fidel Castro was pursuing aims completely separately to what the Russians preferred, but that, of course, is ridiculous. Without Russia's powerful navy and air force, their funding, their weapons, the purchase of their sugar at inflated prices, the Cubans would have been paddling to Angola in kayaks. From the Western point of view, the war in Angola was a matter of sensitivity, given that both Zaire and Zambia relied on the Benguela Railway as the main outlet for the copper belt. That's why the SADF tried so hard to ensure that both the railway and the ports of Lubito and Benguela remained in UNITA or the FNLA's hands, but actually failed to do that after Operation Savannah. The Angolan coastline was of strategic importance in NATO's plans, as the control of the various sea routes was crucial in the wake of the Middle East oil crisis and wars of the early 70s. There was only one other route, and that was around the Cape and up the west coast of Africa if the Suez Canal was blocked. Even now we see how important that route is after the container ship Ever Given fiasco in early 2021, where it blocked the canal for over a week. Hundreds of vessels were stuck in the Indian Ocean and in the Med, 
with many deciding they'd take the longer route around the Cape when it became obvious that the Egyptians couldn't refloat the container ship quickly enough. With Portugal falling to a left-wing government in the summer of 1975, Washington was caught in an era of détente. Henry Kissinger began to talk to Lisbon through the Russians, and America's position was further weakened by the Watergate crisis. Moscow now knew that the U.S. would bend over backwards rather than take up Angola as a major issue. And of course, the South Africans' invasion of Angola merely reinforced that situation. The Soviets capitalized on the South African intervention by proving that the Americans had been on the ground alongside the SADF, supporting the FNLA unit of forces. By November 1975, a few days after Operation Savannah began, Moscow formally recognized the MPLA and publicly withdrew support from UNITA. Moscow then pressurized the OAU to recognize the MPLA, which up to January 1976 they had not. The OAU's charter included the line, No state should recognize any liberation movement in the event of the latter declaring unilateral independence, which is precisely what the MPLA did. As we heard last episode, by January, the MPLA was recognized as the new government of Angola and set the state for ongoing war where the most important characteristic was access to high volumes of high-quality weapons. The SADF had faced these and, as we know, had begun rearming itself immediately. Such was the shock of facing better artillery and weapon systems. It must be said that success in Angola led the Russians to completely overestimate their own power, and then they invaded Afghanistan in 1978. There was a period, an hiatus if you like, where Russia eclipsed Washington's international diplomatic mission while the Americans peered inwardly, weakened by both the fall of Saigon and Richard Nixon. Starting in 1976, the strategic doctrines of the two superpowers underwent a dramatic shift. For the US, it was a period of nuclear parity and conventional inferiority. They had limited options as their own internal politics were riven. Just as an aside, it looks similar today with the Afghanistan pullout by the Americans that has seen the Taliban rush back in and America's right and left-wing hatred of each other compounding a confused situation back home. The Angolans began to reorganize their army along conventional Soviet lines. And this was one of the weaknesses that the SADF would attack through the coming border war years. The Soviet structure, you see, was rigid and the style of training lacked an effective counterinsurgency capability. And now Soviet advisors were attached to every single Angolan brigade. The Angolan Air Force, or Forza Aerea Popular de Angola, or FAPA, lacked just about everything. So the Cubans, East Europeans, and other African pilots ended up filling the gap. And the Soviets actually ran Angolan air logistics until late in the 1980s. We need to say that of all the independence movements, the MPLA was actually the weakest at this point. So by dominating the weakest local political movement, Russia had managed a major dual strategic victory. Firstly, it increased Soviet credibility in supporting insurgencies globally. And secondly, it ensured a constant ideological and financial dependency by sustaining this weak government in power that would also become one of the most corrupt in the world. UNITA was case in point. Although being hemmed into the southeast, it was a major force that continued fighting the MPLA despite its massive Russian support all the way through to Namibian independence in 1990. Yes, the SADF helped, but don't be fooled by the one-eyed racists who say that without the white soldiers fighting for Jonas Savimbi, UNITA would have collapsed in months. It wouldn't have. By early 1976, UNITA had established an insurgency in the Central Highlands, regrouping in the Bia province and extending its power southwards into Kwando Kubango. The army was reorganized into fronts 
and military regions followed a guerrilla strategy that the Viet Cong would have recognized. The new Kwanzaa Manifesto included hit-and-run attacks on economically important infrastructure, such as the Benguela Railroad. UNITA also managed to exploit the bipolar competition by also tapping into southern African regional politics and leaning, of course, heavily on South Africa. Meanwhile, the South Africans were also reorganizing and rebuilding. Apart from the coming changes to the national service call-up of white males, Pretoria realized that it had to develop black soldiers. In 1975, the South African Cape Corps was designated as a combat unit for the first time, and by the start of Operation Savannah, 190 of these men were in southwest Africa fighting in counter-insurgency operations. The Navy followed shortly afterwards, while the Army established what you could call ethnic-based infantry battalions, sort of military bunterstones, I suppose. The first units of black troops were the Chipenda faction of the FNLA that joined the formerly whites-only 3-2 battalion, while 3-1 battalion was formally created out of Foxbat's Bravo battle group of Bushmen. 101 battalion was composed of Avambos, 201 battalion ended up as a motorized infantry brigade, and a large number of black Southwest Africans joined the police counterinsurgency unit called Kufut. This unit would go into sow carnage and torture inside South Africa in the dying days of apartheid, but at this point, they were counterinsurgent operators. While 3-2 Battalion and Kufut remained inside the SADF, the others would become part of what was known as the Southwest African Territorial Force, or SWATF, but only in 1980. All this rearming and hiring of soldiers comes with a price tag. In 1962, the South African Army's budget was 72 million rand, or less than a percent of GDP. That rose quickly to over a billion rand in 1976, and by 1979, it had grown to 2.6 billion, or 5% of GDP. Pretoria was cut off from the rest of the world through sanctions, and it was at this point that the old saying, a boor mark a plan, resonated. Initially, South Africa created its own arms industry through the state-owned entity called Arms Corps. In development already was the soon-to-be-feared long-range 155mm G5 and self-propelled G6 gun howitzers, amongst other deadly weapons. This led to South Africa making alliances with other pariah states, Taiwan, Chile, and Israel, amongst others. So it's no coincidence that the Cheetah, which was a South African conversion of the Mirage 3 aircraft, looks a lot like the Israeli Kafru. In May 1976, and 23 years after the end of the Korean War, Number 2 Squadron was called on to fly their first operational mission of the border war. Intelligence reports on the Angolan army were received at Grootfontein. Commander Colonel Dan Zeman was given authority for three cross-border missions and Number 2 Squadron was given the task of carrying out this attack. The reason was, these intelligence reports were starting to indicate that the Russians had installed SA-2 and SA-3 missile launchers in southern Angola. On the 14th of May 1976, Commandant Oli Holmes led a formation of four Mirage 3s on the ferry flight from Vatakluf Air Force Base in Pretoria to Ondangwa via a refueling stop at Grootfontein. Things didn't go according to plan, with the planes experiencing a problem after the point of no return. The belly tank on Holmes's aircraft failed to feed fuel. He dropped the tank and climbed to gain maximum distance. Pilots who flew Mirages were obsessive about fuel. The aircraft swallowed gallons in minutes, and every aviator knew how critical jet fuel management was. Holmes managed to make it to Grootfontein, where it was found he had only 20 gallons left, a tiny amount for the Mirage. As we're going to hear in the series, the Mirage was a fabulous fighter plane, but its major weakness was small fuel tanks, and southern Africa is a big place. The Mirages were tasked with flying three recon missions into Angola, and this would not be easy. 
MiG-21 activity was normal in the area they were to cover, and it was decided that Holmes and Major Barry Moody would fly as escort for the photographic Mirage 3R2Z, flown alternatively by Major Steve Ferreira and Skilly Hartog. The daylight flight was an east-west route from Menok, Kuchi, Kovango, Matala, Lubango and Namibe, with a third of the long route covered each mission. The first sortie duly took off early on the 16th of May, and the second two the following day. They went for a bit of a shock on the second flight. Moody flew the Mirage R2Z over the surveillance points where the missiles were supposed to be based, and indeed, his radar gave a locked-on warning signal, triggering high-speed maneuvering out of the area. Later, though, they realized it was a false alarm. After these flights, the planes flew from Grootfontein back to Vatukluf, and indeed, photographic results would show an entire series of SA-2 and SA-3 fixed missile sites had been built by the MPLA. Many of these men had been involved in the SA Air Force Advanced Flying School at Petersburg. There were three flights set up there. 27 Impala Mark I and Mark IIs introduced pilots to combat flying. Then there were 16 Sabres, where selected pilots received advanced weaponry and combat training, and 30 Mirages, both dual and single-seaters, where experienced Impala pilots would be taught ground attack and air fighting techniques. By now, a series of permanent battalion bases had been set up along the border in southwest Africa, their locations determined by local circumstances or suspected Swapo crossing points. Endless patrols had been carried out for the past year, and these had led to skirmishes with planned insurgents, along with hearts and minds patrols to try and convince local Ovambo to avoid joining Swapo. Citizen force and commando force battalions were called up more regularly, but the system was still incredibly inefficient. They were only in place for two months before being rotated back home, and this led to constant travel and refresher training, not ideal when troops need to become acclimatized as quickly as possible. Swapo, of course, was aware of these rotations, and began to time their border crossings to coincide with SADF changing personnel. No one stayed around long enough to build a comprehensive knowledge of the locals and the landscape. Attempts were made at long-winded handovers to try and fill this gap, but this is not a clever way to deal with a counterinsurgency. Still, the use of a civilian army to fill a standing army need was regarded as a valid concept almost a hundred years after the Boer War. And the SADF was adapting quickly on the ground. It would become the strangest war this army ever fought, with black tribesmen recruited as soldiers, trackers and guards. Bushmen were hired renowned for their superb ability to follow an indecipherable trail. Dogs were being used to sniff out landmines, and soldiers were now on horses and motorbikes. It was almost anachronistic. Soldiers on horseback moving through the southwest African bush, like something out of a historical movie. But it was a clever move, as these animals gave the soldiers a great elevated view, and of course, they were virtually silent. The border war was still very low intensity, with most troops never firing their weapon in anger or experiencing hot battles. Intermittent contacts were reported here and there, mines would be detonated, and what the SADF called shoot-and-scoot attacks were carried out by Swapo. The armoured cars were being used mainly as base defences and on patrols. Paratroopers were dropped from helicopters as quick reaction forces. And the newly formed 3-2 battalion had been deployed to the border and saw constant action. For the MPLA's armed wing plan, the fact that the Cubans were now right up against the border was a boon. As I said, their incursions increased noticeably after March 1976. The SADF responded immediately, and in May and June of 1976, a number of firefights took place. By the end of June, 70 planned insurgents had been killed, wounded or captured in operations, and the SADF suffered 17 casualties. 22 of the planned casualties had been as they tried to re-enter Angola from southwest Africa. The fact that it was 
Dry season meant it was far easier to find Swapa on the ground in Avambaland. Then in mid-July, another 26 planned insurgents died in a skirmish with the SADF. The South Africans were also able to seize a large number of weapons and ammunition in these contacts. One SADF soldier died and five had been wounded through July. This was a period of some success for the South Africans, but also tainted by accusations that cross-border massacres of civilians was taking place. In July, the MPLA accused the SADF of flattening three villages. Then Zambia said 24 civilians had died and 45 were wounded in an attack by the South Africans at a place called Siolola. Pretoria rejected these reports as propaganda, but Zambia took the complaint to the United Nations, which heard the matter on the 27th of July. The hearing, though, turned into an embarrassing moment for Zambia's foreign minister. As it transpired, the village was actually a Swapo transit camp 30 kilometers from the Caprivi border. There was much debate, and South Africa's foreign minister, Puk Buerta, defended Pretoria's actions, neither side making much headway in what was a he-said-he-said he said series of comments. Liberia then suggested a fact-finding mission be sent immediately to Sio Lola, and Buerta said the South Africans would support it. However, the Zambians did not. Instead, the Security Council voted to condemn Pretoria for its armed attack. At the same time as this diplomatic turbulence, the Caprivi had actually turned into a quiet zone of the border war. Swapo had direct access to a Vambaland further west now, and the SADF patrols were effective in Caprivi, as well as local residents who had responded well to the Hearts and Minds campaign. The liberation movement for the Caprivi, known as the Caprivi African National Union, or KANU, was also indulging in an ongoing dispute with Plan and Swapo. The relationship had been deteriorating for some time, as Kanu wanted Plan to fight with them inside the Caprivi Strip, instead of heading off to Ovambaland. Still, there was some calm on the border in August and September 1976, except for one incident. Rifleman Eugene de Lange took a wrong turn driving an army vehicle to a refugee camp and ended up inside Angola and inside an MPLA prison. No GPS in those days, I'm afraid, nor Google Maps. In October, the South Africans were beginning to build the Jati Strip, an area of cleared land one kilometre wide and 420 kilometres long, following what was known as the Cut Line, or the border with Angola. This was an area fenced off with barbed wire two metres high, and it was a free fire zone. Anyone seen moving in it would be shot first, questions asked later. But things would change, though, in December 1976, as we're going to hear next episode. Please rate the podcast on your platform of choice, and you can contact me on Twitter, at Des Latham, or through the website abwarpodcast.com. Until next, Kala Ponawa. Mm-hmm.